Thank God. Amen. We praise him for he is worthy of all our worship and our praise, brothers and sisters. And we thank God today for every blessing he has given us to be able to come together to worship the Lord. Now, on last Sunday, brothers and sisters, as you know, if you were with us last Sunday, that we have begun this new series from the gospel according to Mark. So turning your Bibles to the gospel of Mark, it's the second book in the New Testament after the gospel of Matthew. This new series that we have embarked upon beginning last Sunday where we began by preaching what is considered by many to be the theme verse of the entire gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said there that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Today, brothers and sisters, we begin at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as we embark and continue on this series, this series that I've titled, Jesus, the Son of God, Suffering Servant, Savior of sinners in the gospel according to Mark. Imagine yourself as a Christian living during the latter half of the first century AD in Rome. Rome has been a city in tumult because of the great fire which devastated the city for nine days in A.D. 64. Tremendous loss and devastation have taken hold of the city. This is during the reign of the Roman emperor known as Nero. To make matters worse for Christians... Nero conveniently blamed the fire on them and launched one of the worst periods of persecution in Christian history. Nero's persecution of Christians was especially cruel. Some Christian believers were fed to lions and dogs in the Colosseum. Others were covered with tar and burned alive and used as lights to light up the night. Still others were crucified. It was a horrendous situation created by a conspiracy theory, a lie against God's people, most likely because of their refusal to participate in the pagan festivities of the emperor. It was during this period that John Mark, who had become a companion of the apostle Peter in Rome, 
is believed to have written this gospel account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Peter refers to John Mark over uh, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, as my son. Not much is known about the personal life of John Mark. He is referred to uh, as, and I quote, John, who is called Mark in Acts chapter 15, verse 37, where the apostle Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement over whether to allow him to accompany them on their second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and following. There, by the way, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them on the second missionary expedition, but Paul did not want to do so. In fact, Paul refused to do so because on the first missionary expedition that Paul and Barnabas had gone on, John Mark deserted them. He started out with him in that first missionary journey. And for some reason, he deserted them and did not complete that missionary journey with them. And so Paul was unwilling to take John Mark with them on the second missionary journey. But Barnabas was, and it led to a sharp disagreement and a split between Paul and Barnabas. And as it turned out, Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus and Paul selected Silas to accompany him on the second missionary journey. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Colossians 4.10 indicates that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. So one could see why it was that Barnabas may have felt so uh, emotionally attached to including Mark on that second missionary expedition. Mark is thought to be the, quote, young man referred to in Mark chapter 14, the gospel of Mark, this gospel, chapter 14, verse 51 who escaped capture by the Roman and Jewish authorities who had come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says there, by the way, in Mark chapter 14, verse 51, that there was a young man in the crowd, and when, that is to say, in the crowd that had come there uh, to arrest Jesus, that there was a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment and was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It is also known that Mark, John Mark, that is to say, was a Jew and that he was the son of a prominent woman in the early church whose name was Mary, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 12. 
Now, of course, this is not to say Mary who was the mother of Jesus, but there were several women by the name of Mary who were followers of Jesus or who had been followers of Jesus while he was on earth. So John Mark had the privilege of being a companion to two of the greatest apostles in the New Testament, Paul and Peter. Early church tradition confirms that Mark served as the apostle Peter's interpreter and that he wrote his gospel from Peter's recollections, most likely in the city of Rome. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we believe that John Mark was divinely inspired by God to write an account of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus according to the memory of Peter, who was one of the original 12 disciples of our Lord. Peter, by this time, uh, had significantly aged and was getting along in years, was living in Rome, and Mark, among others, were there accompanying the great apostle. And while they still had him with them, and he was able to recount the things that had taken place during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on earth, they took advantage of that opportunity while it still was available to them. Mark did by taking down the recollections of Peter, not necessarily in chronological order, but he just got down, if you will, on parchment in writing as much as Peter uh, was able to remember and to pass on to them. Peter, the apostle Peter, by the way, confirms the fact of the divine inspiration of scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, when he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, Peter, as, as one of the eyewitnesses of his majesty, was of inestimable worth to the early church. And that is why God, the Holy Spirit, uh, inspired John Mark to write down the recollections of Peter, the apostle. And Peter affirms and confirms that uh, the scriptures, these scriptures as they were known to be, were not cleverly devised tales, but that they were eyewitness accounts of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, which means that it is God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That is to say that well, this is the reason why we refer to the Bible as Holy Scripture and the Word of God, brothers and sisters. For it is indeed the Word of God 
having been preserved by God's divine grace for us to this very day. And the story of the preservation of the scriptures and copies of the scriptures is in and of itself a wonderful story that we don't have time to go through now, but that all Christians uh, should be aware of and knowledgeable of. So as we journey together through the episodes of Mark's gospel, let us read it with reverence and listen with obedience to the word of God. And I pray that this gospel brings powerful transformation to each of our lives. Now, brothers and sisters, as we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, these opening words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, these words function as the title for Mark's gospel account. James Edwards observes that most ancient writings would normally either begin with a formal introduction stating the purpose of the writing or begin with a brief opening line addressing the first subject of the writing. The Gospel of Mark begins with a brief opening line. Though this opening line is brief, it is nonetheless packed with a library of truth. Under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John Mark is intentional in his choice of words. He begins with the word beginning, which is a rhetorical allusion back to creation as recorded in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The purpose for Mark's rhetorical allusion to creation is to help the reader recognize that the gospel has its origin in God who created all things. The gospel did not only begin when the Son of God came to earth. It begins with the eternal God. The gospel begins with the eternal God. So at the very beginning of creation, the gospel existed with God. This tells us, brothers and sisters, that the gospel is not God's plan B in response to human sin. The gospel has always been God's plan A from eternity. Let me say that again for the sake of those who may have missed it. This tells us that the gospel is not God's plan B in response to human sin. It wasn't as though God was caught off guard by Adam and Eve's sin. The gospel has always been God's plan A from eternity. At the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 6 through 7, 
If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, if you happen to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or if you're in the Gospel of Mark right now, just turn all the way to the right to the last and final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, the apostle John sees a vision of an angel preaching the eternal gospel. Here's what it says. Here's what he says. Then I saw another angel flying midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. Wow. You see, the gospel is eternal. And it brings eternal life to those who repent and believe. The angel in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, comes midair, where he is suspended in midair flying, high above everyone else so that everyone could see and hear him declare the eternal gospel. And he declared this eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Picture this with me for a moment, brothers and sisters, because this is actually at a point in the future yet to happen. This angel is preaching the eternal gospel. And while he is speaking, everyone on earth can hear him at the same time. Every nation, every tribe, and every language can understand him at the same time. And all people can comprehend what he is saying, can hear what he is saying at the same time. And the Bible says that he, he proclaimed it with a loud voice, these words, fear God and give him glory. Fear God. Hmm. This reminds me of the conclusion of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. When he comes to the end of his writing of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, let us now hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humanity. Hear this angelic being flying midair and suspending himself over the earth so that everybody can hear him simultaneously declaring what is the content of the eternal gospel? Here it is. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. 
Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. Look at the content of this eternal gospel that he is preaching. It begins with the fear of the Lord, which reminds me of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding. Or Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear God and give him glory, the angel declares. The gospel declares this eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory while you still have time. Fear God and give him the glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. You see, the angelic being has been sent to preach the eternal gospel to the people at this future date and episode because they have been led astray by the confusions and the deceptions of the devil. And before it is eternally too late for lost humanity, God makes one final effort to preach through his angelic being and proclaim the eternal gospel to people, giving them one last time to repent. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. You see, brothers and sisters, you can see the creation theme and creation theology at the heart of this eternal gospel. Worship him who made everything that exists. This harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 in creation. In the beginning, God created everything that is everything that exists. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment is come. The judgment of God is at the heart of the gospel, just as the fear of God is at the heart of the gospel, and the glory of God is at the very heart of the gospel, and the command to worship God is at the heart of the gospel, and to worship God as the creator of everything that exists is at the very heart of the biblical gospel. It is the heart of the eternal gospel. The gospel is eternal because it brings eternal life to those who repent and believe. The creation that had been created good by God became thoroughly corrupt by Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis chapter 3. And their disobedience set in motion God's eternal plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. It's true, brothers and sisters. Mark's rhetorical allusion is also affirmed by the opening words of the Gospel of John. Now, if you happen to be in Revelation there, turn back to the left from that last book in the Bible, back to the Gospel of John, 
which is also known as the fourth gospel. It is the fourth book in the order of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him, all things were made that is creation, created. All things were created through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Wow. John's direct reference to the beginning is referring to creation just as the rhetorical allusion of Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is referring to creation. It's an indirect reference in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, but the word beginning harkens back to creation, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In John chapter 1 verse 1, it is a direct reference to the beginning. You see, in John chapter 1 verse 1 here, brothers and sisters, the apostle John is referring to Christ as the divine word of God. The English word here, word, <laughs> comes from the Greek word logos. That Christ is the divine logos of God. The word of God who was with God in the beginning and creation. Jesus is the embodiment of the eternal word of God and the gospel. James Edwards writes, for Mark is, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. Wow, think about that with me and ponder the profundity of these truths for just a moment, brothers and sisters. This reference to the beginning in Mark chapter 1 and in John chapter 1 verse 1 as well, referring back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. These references ought to be easy to remember, brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 1 verse 1, John chapter 1 verse 1, all pointing back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, re referring to the creation in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the introduction of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is no less profound and significant than the creation of the world. Because Jesus is the author of a new creation. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Some of you, I'm sure, remember that. If any 
If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And that he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God made him, speaking of Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the author of the new creation. Jesus, the son of God and second person of the Trinity. You see, the gospel was never God's plan B. It was always God's plan A. Now, brothers and sisters, we see here in this statement, just in this statement, it's, it is considered to be, by many, the title statement, if you will, of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the gospel is at its most basic meaning here, news, the word Gospel. The Greek word translated gospel is at its most basic meaning the idea of news or tidings. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, Isaiah 52, 7, the great prophet Isaiah says these words. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. You see those words there, news and tidings, good news and good tidings. Let me read on. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. You see, the the gospel is good news from God. It is the message of salvation for sinners. It is a message of grace from God toward sinners. It is not merely a message of temporal salvation. It is a message of eternal salvation for all who repent and believe Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul gave one of the clearest statements of the gospel in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, when he wrote, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. First Corinthians 
15, 3 through 5. Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile, in his book titled, What is a Healthy Church Member?, offers this summary of the gospel when he writes, and I quote, The gospel, or good news of Jesus Christ, is that God the Father, who is holy and righteous in all his ways, is angry with sinners and will punish sin. Man, who disobeys the rule of God, is alienated from the love of God and is in danger of an eternal and agonizing condemnation at the hands of God. But God, who is also rich in mercy because of his great love, sent his eternal son, born by the Virgin Mary, to die as a ransom and substitute for the sins of rebellious people. And now, through the perfect obedience of the Son of God and his willing death on the cross as a payment for our sins, all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, following him as Savior and Lord, will be saved from the wrath of God to come, be declared just in his sight, have eternal life, and receive the Spirit of God as a foretaste of the glories of heaven with God himself, end quote. The gospel is the power of God under the salvation of everyone who believes, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. In writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Mark was inaugurating a whole new literary genre termed gospel. The New Testament contains four accounts or biographies of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four writings of the New Testament. These four writings comprise the Gospels. That is to say, the Gospels as a literary genre. Each of these Gospels give an account of the life and ministry of Jesus from different angles, perspectives, or points of view. The Gospels as a literary genre are unique in all human literature because of Jesus and the way he is portrayed. There are many things said about Jesus that cannot be said about anyone else in all of human history. For example, Jesus was born of the virgin according to Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. And Luke, and not only Matthew 1, 18 to 25, but Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Another example, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, according to Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And in Matthew chapter 16, 
The apostle Peter responds there by saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not only that, Jesus is the promised fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, according to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. There, Luke recounts Jesus' encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus says to them, how slow of heart are you to believe all that the prophets have written? And there in Luke chapter 24, the scripture goes on to say that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus spoke to them about all things concerning himself. Or that he is the blessed one who will be seated at the right hand of God, according to Mark chapter 14, verse 62. There, Jesus is on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin Council. So the Gospels are a literary genre all their own. And they are unique in all of human literature because they are not only human literature. They are divine, divinely inspired literature. Again, this reminds us of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, and that includes these four gospels, all scripture is God-breathed. That is to say, divinely inspired by God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the subject, the sum, and the substance of the gospel. The name Jesus derives from the Hebrew name Joshua, the Hebrew word Yehoshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or the Lord is salvation. In other words, the very name Jesus means salvation. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our only salvation. Jesus is the personal name of our Savior. God the Father has given him a name that is above every name. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second name here, Christ, is actually a title which means anointed one 
or Messiah. This indicates that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming Redeemer of Israel. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, was born in Bethlehem just as the prophet had prophesied. His origins and his origins are eternal. That's what the phrase at the end of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, that his origins are from of old, from ancient times. That is a reference to eternity, actually. That his origins are eternal. His name is above all names. Another way of looking at this is that the name Jesus Christ indicates that he is fully God and fully human. Now, church, you may remember that I taught us about the four Christological passages of the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. These four Christological passages give us a complete view of who Jesus is in his personhood. He is fully God and fully human. John chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. So here we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. We have this reference to him as the son of God because it clarifies and defines who he is as the Christ, the Messiah, who he is as Jesus. Yahoshua, the Lord is salvation. He is the son of God. Here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And then at the end of the gospel of Mark, we have the only other recurrence of this phrase, son of God, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39. Mark recognizes it at the beginning of his gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But it was the Roman centurion who recognized it at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 39, which says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus as Jesus was dying on the cross, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son 
of God. Surely this man is the son of God. For not only did he die on the cross as the Roman centurion and others witnessed, but he was raised from the dead on the third day. So not only was he the son of God, he is the son of God eternal. Surely, church, he is God's one and only son. Surely he is the one prophesied of throughout Old Testament scripture, the redeemer who would come to redeem not only Israel, but who would come to redeem all who would repent and trust in him for eternal salvation. Surely he is the son of the living God. This, my brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your holy and divine presence to thank you with joy and with worship and with praise for your grace and your goodness and your words spoken to our hearts today. Oh God, we want to pray for sinners under the sound of my voice who have heard the word of the gospel today. Oh God, that by the convicting work of your Holy Spirit and your word, that they would surrender to you, Lord Jesus, surrender to your gospel in obedience and faith, that they would repent and believe the gospel, that you died for their sins on the cross and rose again on the third day, that you reigned supreme seated at the right hand of God the Father in the majesty on high, and that you are coming soon, that the hour of divine judgment is coming soon, and that now is time for them, for all, to repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand again. Oh God, we pray for the lost, for those who are not saved, for those who do not know you, who have not been redeemed by your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus. We pray for their salvation, for only you can save. Only God can turn hearts toward him. We, O oh God, proclaim the truth of your word, but you, it's you, O oh God, who saves the sinner. And, O oh God, we pray for the saints that this preaching of the gospel today has caused every one of our hearts to burn with the grace of God, with the glory of God, with the goodness of God to us in the gospel. For it is the gospel that not only saves us, but it is the gospel that sanctifies us for eternity. It is the gospel that not only has saved us, but the gospel that saves us for eternity. Thank you, O God, for an eternal gospel that saves. We thank you and we praise you today for this amazing privilege to be taught 
the deeper truths of God in the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for so great a salvation. Now, Lord, we ask your grace upon each and every one through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.